invite you to turn with you in your Bibles, first of all, to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to read the verses 24 to 49. You're probably familiar with the <clears throat> narrative. It's the story of Daniel explaining the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. I will explain some of that more in the sermon, but this time I want to read God's word with you. Daniel chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 24. Hear the word of God. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said to, thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshashar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and, as in, and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As, be, as for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this, and he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image." This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, that bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom power and strength and glory and wherever the children of men dwell or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven he has given them into your hand and he has made you ruler over them all you are this head of gold but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours then another a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, 
and like iron that crushes that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king thus far. Would you then turn with me in the back of your Psalter hymnal to Lord's Day 48? You'll find that on page 895. Lord's Day 48. Dealing with the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. Question and answer 123 of Lord's Day 48, page 895. And I remind you that this is your confession of faith as it is mine. Question and answer 123 asks, what does the second petition mean? Your kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until your kingdom fully comes when you will be all in all. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Bowmanville with me this afternoon. We read the story together. Wicked King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and that dream so troubled him that he was unable to sleep. He found no rest. He could not even remember the dream, and he was so vexed and troubled by the whole experience that he could not rest. 
And when he had the dream, it was so real, it was so startling, so profound that he was convinced that the dream must have great significance and he was determined to find an explanation for what he had experienced. And so he called all of the wisest men, all of the sages, astrologers, magicians, soothsayers, they were all called upon to tell not only the dream but also the interpretation of the dream. And when it then becomes evident that they were unable to do so, Nebuchadnezzar sentenced them all, including Daniel, to death. Off with their heads. But we read that the man appointed to execute Daniel spoke to him about this matter, and as consequence, the execution was postponed, at least long enough so that Daniel could consult with his God with regards to the dream. And God spoke to Daniel. God revealed the dream to Daniel, and Daniel was able to relate the dream and its meaning, its interpretation, to the king. Daniel told the king that in the king's dream, he had seen a great image, a statue, if you will, a statue made of gold and silver and brass and iron, and that this great image, this great statue, stood on feet made of a mixture of clay and iron. And the meaning of that image is this, says Daniel. The image itself portrays Babylon and other great earthly powers. The gold represented Babylon. Persia was represented by the silver. Macedonia by brass. And finally Rome in the iron. And Daniel explained that all these earthly kingdoms, even though they be wealthy as gold and silver, even though they be hard and strong as iron, each of these kingdoms would exist only for a season. And it happened, just as Daniel had prophesied. History tells us that one after another, these earthly kingdoms rose to power, prospered for a while as a superpower in the Eastern world, and then collapsed. But what God wanted Nebuchadnezzar and us to see is the cause of the downfall of these earthly powers. You see, there was good reason why these nations, these powers, did not survive. And that reason is given us in the interpretation of the dream. You see, that image, that huge image, or if you will, all of these powerful nations, they rested on, they stood on, their foundation was a mixture of clay and iron. Clay and iron do not mix they cannot be melded or welded together. The mixture, that mixture has no strength. Anything, any kind of a structure made from a mixture of clay and iron cannot last. And that's precisely what was seen in the dream. A stone rolled onto the image as a large bowling ball, if you will. And when the iron and the clay separated, it toppled the entire mighty image that statue fell. And the symbolism, of course, is that all, all of earthly powers, no matter how majestic, no matter how powerful or enormous, if not founded on the word of God, will be toppled by God as God advances his kingdom. Kingdoms will wax and wane, but nothing will stand in the way of the coming of the kingdom of God. Our confession of this afternoon speaks of these things. And I want to minister God's word to you using as my theme the words of the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom 
come. We want to examine the spiritual nature of the kingdom. We want to consider the certain victory of the kingdom. And then finally the glory of the kingdom. So thy kingdom come. The spiritual nature, the victory, and the glory of the kingdom of God. Congregation, in order to understand precisely what it is that we're asking in this second petition of the Lord's Prayer, we need to first of all carefully define what it is that we mean when we use the word kingdom. You see, the word kingdom is used differently in different scriptural contexts. And so we need to have it clear in our minds, first of all, precisely what it is that we mean. Just what do we mean when we ask of the Father that his kingdom may come? Well, in order to understand, we need to make a clear distinction between the kingdom of God in general and the kingdom of God in a special sense. Follow this with me. In this context, to help us to understand it, it would be correct to say that God is the father of all creation by virtue of the fact that he has created it and therefore owns it. His creation is his kingdom. That would be one use of the word kingdom. But God is the father of his own by virtue of recreation. All of, over all of God's phys- physical creation, he t- out of all of God's physical creation, he takes a segment of humanity, recreates them, and they form or they make up, if you will, a spiritual kingdom. And that is now the other proper use of the word kingdom. Bear with me as I try to explain further. You see, in a general sense, God is king over all, and all of the kingdom is his. He is king by virtue of his creation. He has made all things, he governs all things, and he has placed all things under his authority. And so all things are in subjection to him. God God exercises his authority, and in his divine providence, as king... He owns all things. He governs all things. In fact, the history of Job tells us that even the devil is restrained and governed by God. Everything that lives and breathes exists as part of God's creation. And it is in the kingdom of God and subject to him as king of creation. But besides that general kingdom of God, there exists also a different kingdom of God. Think with me of the words of our Lord when he said that without the gift of regeneration, without being born again from above, men and women could not expect to see, much less enter, the kingdom of God. So obviously, if men and women who were already in that general kingdom were able through new birth to enter into another kingdom, then there must also exist an entirely different kingdom, and indeed it is so. Scripture also identifies the kingdom of heaven, or if you will, the kingdom of Christ. My dear people, according to the Bible, it has pleased God to prepare a particular people unto himself, and he did so, you heard much of that from me already, he did so on the basis of the satisfaction of Christ. 
And that particular people, they make up the kingdom of Christ, and they are, or they make up, a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom distinct and different from the general or the natural kingdom. And it is now that spiritual kingdom that we have before us in our confession this afternoon. When we speak of the coming of the kingdom in this context, what must begin to come into focus for us here is that the proper subjects of this kingdom are not simply all of those who were created by God, but only those who are recreated or born of God. The Lord has said that in order to enter the kingdom, a person must be born again. And so the kingdom for which we pray here in this petition is the collective body of the redeemed. We are praying for, in this petition, for the coming of the collective body of the redeemed. And that means that the kingdom of Christ, or the kingdom of God, encompasses the church of Jesus Christ. And the subjects of that kingdom are church members, who are not simply church members, but church members who are born again of God. And so what we need to begin to capture in our minds in all of this is that this particular kingdom is radically different from the general kingdom we talked about. As we have seen over and over again, there are only two kinds of people in the world, and there are only two different kinds of kingdom. In all of the world, there is only light and darkness. There is only Christ and Antichrist. And all men and women of the world are in one, either one of these two kingdoms. There is no neutrality. There is no such thing, forgive me, there is no such thing as an almost Christian. There's no such thing as being a little bit Christian. You either are or you are not. It's like being a little bit pregnant. You either are or you are not. There's nothing in between. There is only light and darkness. Either you are a Christian and therefore you are in the kingdom of light, or you are a non-Christian and therefore still in the kingdom of darkness. There is no other alternative. There are no other categories. And now the kingdom for which we pray in this petition is the coming, or if you will, the advancement of the kingdom of light. We're praying for the advancement of that spiritual kingdom. Or to be more precise, we are praying for the furthering of, we are praying for the growth of the church of Jesus Christ. But now it is crucial that we understand that this kingdom of light is a spiritual kingdom. And therefore, the weapons used by and in this kingdom must only and always be spiritual weapons. Remember with me the clear words of our Lord where we are taught that the kingdom will come. He says the kingdom will come, but he says it will come not by power, not by force, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Because his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, it is gathered, it is advanced, it is expanded by spiritual means. Congregation, there's an important lesson for us here in this context. Understand this well because it, because it is a spiritual kingdom that we seek to advance and because it is a spiritual kingdom, because it is advanced by spiritual weapons or means, therefore, it is futile. 
It is senseless, it is futile to try to force a secular community to live Christianly through legislation. I want to repeat that. I think it's an important principle. It is futile, it is a waste of time to try to force a secular community to live Christianly by legislation. What I mean, for example, is it is futile to believe that a community will become more Christian by establishing laws, for instance, about Sunday observance and such things. We can sometimes get so upset and so worked up when we see our our local stores beginning to offer their wares for sale on the Lord's Day. And it is indeed evidence of the deterioration of our culture. And it is further evidence of the encroaching of the kingdom of darkness. But to pass laws, to close the shops, can do nothing to correct the problem. That cannot be. If God's kingdom comes by spiritual means, then legislation is not the answer. Preaching is. You see, you can lock up the entire town on Sunday, but unless people refrain from shopping because it is the Lord's day in their hearts, you have accomplished absolutely nothing. The mayor can tell the man that he can't cut the grass in the park or the cemetery on Sunday mornings. But all that he will accomplish is that it will be quieter in the church on Sunday mornings because the lawnmower isn't running. But unless that employee is now sitting in church with you, he is still alienated from God, even though he no longer works on the Sabbath. We need to understand that. He is still outside of the kingdom, and spiritually you have accomplished absolutely nothing by legislating laws to control Sunday shopping. The subjects of the kingdom are armed with spiritual weapons and they are defined for us in Ephesians chapter 6 where we read the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation, in short, the whole armor of God. We read nothing there about legislation. No, in order for one to come into the spiritual kingdom, to expand that kingdom, to grow that kingdom, in order for one to come into that spiritual kingdom, his heart needs to be changed. In order for God's spiritual kingdom to advance, to expand, or to come, rebirth and daily conversion need to take place. And that miracle is accomplished by the preaching of the gospel and not by legislation of civil laws. We need to understand that. Peter God, is it starting to fit in your mind? There are two kingdoms, the natural and the spiritual. And using the spiritual weapons of the word and spirit, Christ is gathering men and women out of the one kingdom and placing them in the other. And it is for that gathering process that we pray when we ask that God's kingdom may come. When we pray that God's kingdom may come, we mean we ask thereby that the Lord may gather more and more of his elect out of the world and into the church, out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of light. And we're, we're, we're asking that first of all. And secondly, we are praying that those who are transferred into the kingdom of light may now know how to behave as subjects of the kingdom of light. People of God, citizens of an earthly kingdom, are required to submit to the governing authorities. 
For instance, as citizens of Canada, we are subject to all of the laws governing this land, and the elected and appointed authorities have the right to not only enforce the laws, but they have the right to expect the citizens to obey them, unless it can be proven that those laws are contrary to the word of God. But if they cannot be, if that cannot be demonstrated, then they have the right to expect the citizens to obey the legislation and the rules, and they have the authority to restrain and to punish those who break the laws. Well, think with me then. If that is true in the natural kingdom, how much more than so does Christ not have the right to expect those of us who are subjects of his spiritual kingdom to live in subjection and obedience to his spiritual rule? The catechism continues, points us the way. We read that Christ rules us by his word and spirit so that more and more we would what? Submit to him. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God, working through the power of the Word of God, softens hardened hearts, making men and women willing and obedient subjects of the King. Because of the fall, because of sin, our own spirit resists the rule of the King of Kings, but by His Word and by His Spirit, Christ turns men and women to Him. He makes their hearts pliable. He makes their hearts obedient. And he makes them worthy, knowledgeable, and responsible citizens of the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ. My dear precious people of God gathered here with me in in Salem this afternoon. Our individualistic contemporary Christian world needs to be reminded of this biblical truth. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray that more and more they would submit themselves to the word and the spirit of Christ. Jesus lays these words upon their lips and thereby teaches them of the need to submit to the word and the spirit of Christ. What does that mean? People got captured this well with me, what's being taught us here. It's a concept that is all but lost among us today in our culture. When we pray that God's word and spirit may more and more govern us, then we are confessing that we need the church over which the spirit has been poured out and to whom the holy oracles of God, of the word of God, were entrusted. Responsible Obedient citizens of the kingdom and responsible and subject, submissive subjects of the king, they are made, they are motivated, they are instructed, they are tutored and admonished through and by the church. We have just heard Christ teach us to pray to our Father who art in heaven. And in this context now, John Calvin insists that those who would have God as Father must have the church as mother. That is the will and that is the normal way of the Lord. It is through the church that citizens of the kingdom are nurtured and nursed and equipped and prepared to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. It is through the official preaching of the word by and in the church that the spirit works in ways not usually seen in any other circumstances. We need to recapture that in order to recapture our respect and our love for the church of Jesus. 
Jesus Christ. I never tire of telling my family, my children, my neighbors, my congregations. We need to develop a deep, intense love for the church of Jesus Christ. Despite her weaknesses and her failures. There is no such thing as a perfect church. Because it's made up of imperfect people. But we need to love the church. Because she is the instrument through which Christ works to gather his people. And equip them and prepare them for eternal glory. Do you see how the pieces are beginning to fit together? When we begin to speak of the kingdom, then we are placed face to face with the local church congregation where the word is preached and where the spirit works through that word. People of God, the heart of the kingdom of God lies and beats in the local congregation. How distressing it is to see people claiming to be so fired up for the kingdom work and kingdom service who at the same time express a total lack of concern, a lack of love and even disrespect for the church. Especially today, church membership has lost almost all meaning for contemporary Christianity. And many people claiming to be Christian are stone cold towards church membership. And they do not understand that in their conduct they are in fact resisting the coming of the kingdom. How often... Are we as ministers and elders not confronted with people who honestly believe themselves to be citizens of the kingdom and they'll tell you that to their face and yet they have nothing but disdain if not even contempt for the church. And mighty people of God, such views are so contrary to God's word, so contrary to scripture. It is at best a zeal without knowledge and at worst it is pure radical unbelief. People who are truly filled with a love for the kingdom. They're not blind to the sinful faults of the church. But rather than becoming critical or cynical. They will weep and they will mourn. They will mourn indeed over the broken walls of Zion. But they will love her intensely. And they will commit their all to her. Through good times and through hard times. Because, because, because such people know that the church of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of Christ are one and the same entity the confession continues what does it mean to pray thy kingdom come oh father destroy the works of the devil destroy every power that exalts itself against thee and destroy all wicked counsels conceived against thy holy word walk with me follow with me The petition asks that God's kingdom may come. And we've talked exclusively about that spiritual kingdom. But as we said earlier, there is another kingdom as well. And it is the kingdom of darkness. And that kingdom is very real. And it has a king. And that king is a formidable opponent. Satan is a real person. Just as Christ is a real person. And from the very beginning, war has been raging between those two kingdoms and their, those two kings and their two kingdoms. And when Satan could not prevent the Christ from being born, he attempted to prevent him from going to the cross. 
But all of his efforts failed. Christ came. Christ paid the ransom for his subjects. And he ascended back into heaven. Satan could not triumph over Christ. God had promised victory over the seed of the serpent. But Satan did not give up. When Christ rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven. Oh no. When Satan saw that he was powerless against the woman, he then waged war on her seed, on the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman, people of God, is what? The seed of the woman is the church. And so we pray, Father, destroy the works of the devil because he has declared war on the church of Jesus Christ. We are under attack Satan is not interested in the world. The world belongs to him already. He is after you and me. He's after the church. And the closer you strive to live to Christ, the harder he will attempt to prevent that kingdom from coming. People got Satan is a formidable opponent. And throughout all of history, he has successfully falsified the word of God to make that word a lie and ineffective. Throughout all, throughout all of church history, many churches, church, think of your own church history, but churches once faithful bulwarks of the kingdom have fallen to the deceptive lies of Satan and have changed the truth for a lie. And it is now against that work of Satan that we pray, thy kingdom come. Father, destroy the work of the devil. Destroy all counsels against thee and against thy holy word. Oh, Gird up the loins of your mind with me for a few more minutes and continue to follow this with me. Christ can be found savingly only in Scripture. And so the enemy goes about as a roaring lion and as an angel of light to blind the eyes of the multitude and to draw them away from his word and spirit. And here Christ teaches us to pray. That God will stand firm in his covenant promise to defend and to preserve his church. God has promised that despite the wicked counsels of the work of Satan, Christ will continue to gather to defend and preserve his church so that she will stand firm and not be moved. And in the fullness of time, when his kingdom will arrive in fullness and Christ will be all in all, we will see, we will see through the eyes of our faith, we will see the church of Jesus Christ, despite the assaults of the devil, we will see that she will always remain because, because the gates of hell cannot prevail against her. My dear people, we've got a doctrine and a concept no longer popular today. Is the scripture's teaching of a militant church, a militant church who is constantly involved in bloody, bloody battles in warfare. Contemporary Christianity no longer wants to hear of a militant church for she has totally lost her understanding of God's design and intent for the church. The concept of a church fighting against the onslaught of Satan in order to rescue souls from darkness and hell and equipping them to go out into the world as defenders of the faith, that's no longer understood nor appreciated. No, 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 do not tell me of a God who cannot abide any sin. No, 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 tell me of a God who loves all men and all women despite their sin. Contemporary Christianity wants to hear of a church that is kind, 
gentle, loving, non-judgmental. Today, the emphasis is on the church being all-inclusive. Contemporary Christians want the church to be welcoming gays and lesbians despite God's condemnation of the practice. Today, the church is expected to proudly display and fly the pride flag and welcome and welcome men not satisfied with their appointed gender. Today, the church has become simply a social organization, and to speak of the word of God is no longer even allowed. In fact, to echo the word of God against the celebration of the pride people is considered to be a hate crime. But my dear precious people of God, to resist the pressures from the alphabet people is precisely the kind of warfare in which the militant church must engage herself. Understand this well. Satan has thrown down the gauntlet and he is waging full-scale warfare against the kingdom of Christ. He knows that his time is running out and he's pulling out all the stops. There are no hold barred, and although Satan will disguise himself in many ways, he is still the enemy, and he is a formidable opponent, and he is determined in whatever way necessary or possible to destroy us as individuals, individuals and Christians and collectively <coughs> as Christian church. Christ has won the victory on Golgotha's hill. The Prince of Peace has confronted the Prince of Darkness and defeated him on Calvary. He was conceived of the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, but, but, but on the third day he arose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. Ah, my dear precious people of God, Jesus has gone up to heaven. And he's already taken part of his kingdom to heaven with him. But many subjects, including you and I here gathered together this afternoon, we still remain and we struggle here below. And the road is littered with the blood of the martyrs and the saints. But, 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 but on that last great day of the Lord, on that day appointed by and known only to the Father, then the numbers of God's elect will be full and Christ's kingdom will come in all of its perfection. All of the elect will have answered the gospel call to come out of the kingdom of darkness and will have entered into the kingdom of light. And then, and then Christ will return the kingdom to his Father. On that day, the church will enter the kingdom of heaven where she will rejoice forever perfectly in the presence of her father to whom she had so long prayed for this very coming. But note well, this rejoicing is reserved for Christ's subjects of the kingdom. It's reserved for those who belong to the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. And there in glory, there the church will be perfect, for Satan will not be there. And we will see glory as no eye has seen, nor ear hath heard, nor has even been entered into the hearts or minds of men. 
my dear precious, precious people of God here in Bowmanville, as you struggle with me on that road that leads to eternal glory, let this be a source of comfort for you. No matter how severe, no matter how fierce the battle may be here, no matter how fierce Satan and his minions will vent their, his hatred upon us, no matter how hopeless it may seem, let this blessed assurance control your troubled heart and soul. God's kingdom will come. And at the end of that often painful road that we walk, Christ has laid away for each of his own that crown of righteousness that fadeth not away, kept safe for us in glory. Already now, here below, every one of God's children have received a place in that kingdom through faith in Christ. I like to say, in the Father's house of many mansions, there are many rooms, and one of those rooms has your name on the door. If you belong to Christ, your place has been prepared in heaven, and heaven is waiting to receive you when you come to the end of that difficult, what is called a veil of tears. Christ has gone ahead to prepare a place for us, and soon, despite the scars, the tears, the wounds of the battle, we will enter his glory forever to shelter in peace under the protection of his wings. That is the encouragement, the comfort, and the strength of the church. In that hope, the church preserves, perseveres, and is preserved by Christ. My dear precious saints of God, we need so much to preserve the old doctrines especially in our day for in so many ways in so many places the church is being seduced to abandon the old ways oh come now you don't still believe that do you oh how foolish don't be so antiquated you need to move with the times man in so many ways the church is being seduced to, to abandon the old paths the church is being seduced to abandon the word of God but the word of God must run its course among us. And God's people need to continue praying with heart and mouth, Father, may thy kingdom come. It is no small matter for us to remember the needs of Christ's church before the Father in prayer. What immeasurable comfort is given us here to know that the oppression, the persecution, the attack on the Christian, and the attack on the Christian church will not last long. The warfare will soon be over when God's children will inherit the kingdom. God's children have the foretaste of that perfect kingdom in their hearts already now. As children of the Father, we go to him in prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Father, I know that thou art my Father, and I know that thou art God and Father in heaven. I know that thou art willing to give me every good thing because thou art Father. And I know that thou art able to give me every good thing because thou art God Almighty. Father, hallowed be thy name.
Grant, O Lord, that in all things thy holy name may always be praised and never be blasphemed by me or on account of me, Father. Thy kingdom come. Father, rule us by thy word and spirit so that we might submit more and more to thee, Father. Preserve and increase thy church. Destroy the works of the devil, and Father, we long for the day when all of the elect will have been gathered in. We long for the day when Christ shall appear in the clouds of heaven and the dead shall be raised in in corruption and the present world will pass away and all the forces of darkness shall be destroyed forever. A new heaven and a new earth shall be created and thou shalt be on thy throne. O Father, thy kingdom come. Father, we pray for the coming of the kingdom, being fully cognizant of what that implies. We know Christ will come through wars and pestilence, through famines and earthquakes. We pray that thy kingdom might come and we know that we will have to suffer for his sake until he comes again. And still we pray, Father, may thy kingdom come. We do do that, don't we? Oh, indeed also here we have a but a small beginning of that new obedience required as citizens of the kingdom. And so often we are still so enthralled and enamored with the things of this world that it is often difficult to send this petition to God's throne in spirit and in truth. How good then that Christ gives us this model prayer. May each of us with the disciples beg of him, Lord, teach us how to pray. Go then to him. Pray to him. Bring all of your anxiety as children of God in the kingdom. Tell him of your burdens. Tell him of your pain, your scars, your wounds, your tears. Tell him of the battle that is going on, not only between those two kingdoms, but tell him of the battle that rages so often within your own heart. Tell him that it so often seems as though you are losing the battle. But then ask him to remind you of that battle that has already been won on Golgotha. Ask him to show you his nail-pierced hands. Ask him to show you once again the cross. And then know for certain that your struggle on this earth will not be long and will certainly not be in vain. Your hope in him will never, can never, ever be put to shame. So never, never stop praying. Father in heaven, may thy kingdom come until thou art.